Good evening, High Point family. Good to have you with you, or good to have you with me tonight. And we have an awesome evening in store. Please let me know that you're here. Give a little shout out, and I'll see if I can return the favor. Uh, we've been talking about this night uh, for a while, so we're excited to have Brother John Mark Hicks with us tonight, and of course, Lynn joining us as well. So we'll introduce them in just a minute, but while we're waiting for others to join us, go ahead and, and send me a little text uh, or a comment. Let me know that you're here because we really appreciate uh, not only the time that you give every week for this study, uh, but also the, the time in, in prayer and the, the time that you spend uh, outside this class looking at these things and, and hopefully uh, reading Brother Hicks' book as it, it challenges us. So it looks like uh, Joe and Don were first to check in. So you get double, double stars. That's awesome. Jim Norrid, good to have you and Amy with us. The Herzogs are in the house. Awesome. Brother Mitchell, hey, good to have uh, Bob and Jane with us. All right. The, uh, Joe and Don said they've enjoyed these lessons. Awesome. Hopefully it's a conversation we can continue with. Hello, Bars. Good to have you guys. We're glad to have you. And it looks like uh, Amy Delaney is here. Hi to everyone else. And Paula Austin. Good to see you the past Sunday. Um, all right. Jim says the study's been fantastic. Hello, Belknaps. Good to see Lynn and David are watching with us this evening. And John Hildreth. Okay, uh, typing in from Michigan. Hopefully it's a little cooler up in Michigan than it is here. Hello, Carrie Smith. Glad to have you. I think you might be having some upcoming surgery or something. We'll be praying for you, Carrie. Hello, Ken and Sharon Dunlop. Uh, Dunlop. Good to have you guys with us. And Jimmy and Martha are, are calling in or typing in from Alabama. Hello, Miss Wilma Holloway. Good to have you. Glad you're watching. Jane Overman as well. Hello, John and Talia. Talia, Jill enjoyed our conversation with you out at the store today. So glad that you're out and about. Hello, Bill and Kathy and Paul and Diane. Glad y'all are watching as well. And hello from the Deans. Good to have you guys with us. And Jimmy and Martha. All right, we got you. And the Pendergrass crew is in the house. And so are the Fullen Checks. Good to have Ron and Karen with us. And the old, uh Miss Clarice, good to have you and Holly Gardner and Lewis and Paula. Glad you guys are here. And Kurt and Tara and uh, Don and Harriet. Harriet, you're a little slow on the trigger. Usually you're first one there. So, but we're glad you guys are with us tonight. So, as you know, we've been discussing uh, John Mark Hicks' great book, Searching for the Pattern. And hopefully, if you haven't, go ahead and purchase this. Do it. it it's a great book. Uh, and, oh, okay, Danny and Jennifer are here as well. And the Dulocks, glad to have you. So uh, we've been bannering back and forth. And uh, Lynn has done a, a great job uh, being with us uh, on this uh, study. And we've been uh, hopefully putting together a dialogue that makes sense and also has been informative. I know it's been challenging for me and appreciate what Lynn's been able to do. Uh, but we reached out to our author, uh, Dr. John Mark Hicks. Let's go ahead and bring on Lynn and John Mark with us this evening. So we're glad to have you guys. And uh, Dr. Hicks, it is good to have you. Uh, with us and to take time to be with the High Point family. So I assume that you are connecting from Nashville. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I am. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee and connecting from my home upstairs. It's a beautiful day outside. Hope it's true for you as well. Absolutely. So tell them just a little bit about your role there at Lipscomb, working with the graduate program and everything. Yes, I teach in the graduate department of the Hazlip School of Theology, uh, which is basically graduate degrees in theology and Bible. And uh, I'm the theology and history professor, basically. So, awesome. Yeah. And then uh, something that's pretty cool is a little over a year when you were in the process of putting this book together, 
uh, Brother Lynn from our congregation was reaching out to the different universities and asking what was kind of going on on this, and and they passed him through to you. So tell us just a little bit about your connection with Lynn and what you asked him to do on this book. Well, he, when he um, raised questions about hermeneutics and interpreting the Bible and our tradition and in interpreting the Bible and the ways we've interpreted the Bible in the past and present, uh, I, I just let him know, hey, well, you're, you've got good timing, Lynn, because uh, I'm just about to publish a book <laughs> on that very topic because people have asked me that question many times, and I haven't been able to provide just one good resource that kind of pulls it all together in the way that I think is helpful. Um, so I was writing that, and I shared it with Lynn, and he actually wrote a little blurb for me, so I, I appreciate yeah. what he did there. Well, I, I told Lynn might, how much. You might also, go, go ahead, Lynn. You might also know that, uh, that I uh, shared uh, the essence of what you had uh, written to with Tom Albright, and and he told me he had the same uh, Harvarduic essentially as what yeah. you are putting forth. Yeah, I think that's. I think that that, that is very very similar for sure. Well, yeah. Good, right. You know, one of the things I've uh, told Lynn how much I appreciate is that he's in his 70s, but he is still a lifelong learner and still pursuing truth and pursuing the, the best way to help the church and, and to expand the kingdom of God. Yeah, so, I, I hope that in 15 years I'm, I'm doing what he's doing. So, yeah, that, that's, that is a good example for all of us. <laughs> so, John Mark, um, most of the people have been a part of this study for, uh since the beginning, but there have been a few that have jumped in a little later. Uh, and most people have bought the book or have had access to it. But for those that haven't, just share a little bit about your upbringing in the Churches of Christ and also what you did over at Freed Hardman as a student there. Yes, well, my father was a minister in Churches of Christ. He went to Freed Hardman and uh, graduated in 1949. And so I've had a long history with Fried Hardeman. I went to school there in 1974, kind of following my father's footsteps as well as my mother. Um, so I grew up in Churches of Christ and um, the, uh, I had a wonderful experience growing up in Churches of Christ. I never experienced a church split of any sort that I remember or knew about. Um, I felt formed and loved in Church of the Christ, and I have no animosity whatsoever about that. Right. I mean, it was, um, I am grateful for what I received in my uh, formative faith stages. And when I went to Fried Hardeman, I was um, thrilled to learn from Professor Some of those are still some of my best friends. Um, and love them dearly and love who they are, what they stand for. Uh, so, yeah, I haven't, I didn't have this negative experience with Churches of Christ that right. pushed me down or upset me. Rather, my development was more uh, a discovery of, wait a minute, something's not working here. Uh, this doesn't really uh, pan out like, it's supposed to pan out, at least what I thought it was supposed to pan out as. And so it was kind of a, a disruption from within. It wasn't, it wasn't something from outside. It was within my own hermeneutical development or my own understanding of reading the Bible, uh, but particularly in dialogue with a friend of mine who was part of the non-institutional movement. And we had a long running discussion when I was uh, in my teenage years and into my college years. Uh, we stayed in co close contact. Um, and that discussion what is what began my doubting or my uh, sense of there needs, something's missing. Uh, something is out of kilter with this. and. It's, it's taken me a long time to kind of work that out uh, and to think about it. Yeah. So you, you talked in your book, uh, you know, searching for the pattern that, you know, when you got to 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2, 
when, when you're following that blueprint, if you follow it to the T, it required that the collection of monies just be given to church folks. And how did that, that really kind of bothered you that I, I don't want that to be our blueprint. I, I don't want to be restricted to just that from what I see from scripture. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah I think that's true. I think that was a critical moment for me. Uh, yeah. There were other sorts of moments like that, but that was the one I talked about in the book. Uh, if you follow the blueprint method, the non-institutional brothers and sisters come to the conclusion that the church treasury is only for the church right. and that it cannot be shared with anyone outside the church because 1 Corinthians 16 is a collection for the saints. And so you can't use the collection for non-saints. And that's based upon kind of a silence of scripture sure based upon the specification this is a specified command yeah. you know, use this for the saints and since there's no other example of using the church treasury for others outside the church therefore this this silence is prohibitive um and so if that's the conclusion it leads us to through all the the mechanisms of that hermeneutic in terms of specific and generic and coordinates and silence and so on. If that's where it leads us, then there was something that just didn't sit right with me because it was something about the way I've been formed and the songs that I sang and the, the stories that I knew about Jesus and, and the stories about God and Israel and how God accepted the aliens and the tithes of Israel were for the aliens as well as for the Israelites. It was just yeah. something that just didn't fit well with my sense of who God is, the identity of God. And if yeah. God is one who loves his enemies and gives his son yeah. for those who are his enemies, yeah. how can the church treasury be only for the church? Doesn't God love those outside? The, God gave his son for those outside the church. How can we restrict the church treasury as only for those in the church? So that was something that just didn't sit well. I thought, now this is where the conclusion leads me. If I'm going to follow this method, there's a lot of powerful arguments if you follow that method for, for that conclusion. But it didn't sit it wasn't coherent with who I knew God was in terms of loving us by giving his son. And if we're supposed to be the image of God and we're supposed to follow God and imitate God, then why is it that we can't use the resources of the church to help those who are not Christians? And, and so yeah. that dissonance that created a, a kind of, all right, what 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 can I do with this? Why is it that I feel that tension, and where is that tension coming from? Well, and Lynn and I have have really spent a good three or four weeks talking about what you described in your book as that in between step that we none of us wanted to admit that we thought we could just look right at first century, look right at scripture, and do a one to one. But in reality, especially on necessary inference, and even on some of the examples having to jump around, that there was an in-between step. Right. Uh, anything else that you'd want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I call I call that um, that one-to-one. -one, I call it the Texas two-step. Right. It's it's just <laughs> two steps. You you read it in the Bible, and then you do it. But the problem is nobody does that. Nobody yeah. just reads it in the Bible and reproduces it. What they do is they make distinctions about what they're going to reproduce, right? right? So you don't wear veils. Okay, well, why? I mean, what what what's the decision process? What's the discernment process by which you decide, well, we're not going to do veils, but we are or or in first Timothy two, when when Paul says, you know, don't don't wear gold. Yep. Don't wear pearls. Well, I imagine well, most of us who are married are probably wearing gold, right? Uh, or some right. form of it. But we're so why is it that we don't take that as some kind of timeless universal command. Well, we're making some distinctions. We're, we're, we're recognizing that there's a, there's a middle step. Yeah. There's a step of discernment that the Bible was not written so that everything that it says is automatically reproduced. 
And we've always known that because uh, we don't build arks, right? right. We, we there's some kind of distinction there. And we don't uh, build temples because we know there's some kind of distinction there. And, right. And, you know, and the distinction might be a distinction of the covenants or something like that. But, but it's not reproducing. It's discerning what it is that we are going to imitate and yeah. how we imitate it. So, yeah, there's always that middle step. Everybody has a middle step. So one of the things that, that we've talked about is when we start knocking over the apple cart, so to speak, and looking at things different, uh, not to mix metaphors, but I, I've talked about the trapeze artist that's got a hold of, of one handle. And sometimes we're reluctant to let go of the handle that we know mm. if, if we're going to be jumping out, we don't know what the other one is that we're grabbing a hold of. And so yeah. you talk about this whole theological hermeneutic and filtering things through the Jesus story and the gospel message and, you know, the kingdom of God, all the things that we see in the new Testament. Can you uh, help articulate Lynn's done a great job helping us with that, but why don't you weigh in and just share a little bit about what that other handle is that we're going to grab towards as we read scripture. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it makes a lot of sense that we got hold of the one, one, and we're comfortable with it, and it feels secure to us because we grew up with it or we have practiced it for so long. It just feels comfortable. And we don't want to let go of that because we're not sure what this is. Right. right. And we're not sure where it's going to swing us. <laughs> we're comfortable yeah. here. Uh, so when we grab hold of both, then, then we get this tension, right? You know, uh, uh, or potential tension at least. Yep. Uh, and so that's very uncomfortable and it's, it's, um, it's, it's a t difficult place to be. And I understand that because I lived that. I mean, I, I lived in that tension for so many years, but here, here's what I think is at the root of, of letting go of the blueprint, letting go of one of that one handle here and embracing the theological is it's the story of God. It's, it's about who God is and what God is doing and what God will do and how God is faithful. And we focus, and this is what we sing about. We sing about, you know, the, the life of Christ and we sing about God's faithfulness and we sing about the story of God. Um, and we practice that in the Lord's Supper, and we, we rehearse that story every week, and legitimately so. But what we are doing is we are articulating not a blueprint. We are articulating how God has been faithfully acting in the world for our sake and for the redemption of the world. And so it's not looking for the pattern in some implications and some you know, how do we line this command up with this inference and that example to, to make this particular blueprint pattern? How do we deduce that from the New Testament? Rather, it's thinking about leaning in and becoming a participant in the story of God, yeah. becoming a participant in the mission of God, sharing the life of God, and having a theological frame, a theological center, and the word theology or theological is about God, right? Theos, God. Yeah. So it seems to me it's much more secure to locate ourselves within the story of God's action because it's repeated over and over and over again than it is. It's more comfortable to locate ourselves in the story than it is to locate ourselves in a pattern that has to be deduced through any number of inferences and combinations of commands and examples and, and filling in the blanks and filling in, uh, the, putting in the bricks and building the, the temple, right? And we're not sure we built it right. Seems to me we, we ought to live, that it's, that it's uh, more comfortable to live within the story of God as the one who unfolds how God is at work in the world and in among people and in community and locate that ultimately in the ministry and life of Jesus who shows us who God is and is, is a disciple of God. 
Remember, Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Yep. So Jesus is a disciple of God, and we are disciples of Jesus. So Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, as Christ follows God, right? Yep. And, and I think that it's that discipleship that becomes the center rather than trying to draw out all the potential implications uh, that we might discover. Because the blueprint, as we conceive the blueprint, not explicitly stated. It's not stated as a blueprint. Right. If it was, I mean, if it was like a, a Leviticus and it said, here are the 10 things to do on Sunday morning, we go, yes, sir. <laughs> Let's do that. I mean, amen. But that's not what, that's not how the story is told. Rather, it's about who Jesus is and how Jesus has followed God and we are going to follow Jesus. And instead of locating the pattern in Acts and the epistles, uh, it seems to me we locate the pattern in what God has done in Jesus. And then we see how the church followed Jesus. And we can, we can learn from the church following Jesus and follow the church in that sense, in, in the sense that Paul said, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. But Jesus is the reference point. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. And I, I think that the well, uh, everyone that I've talked to that's been a part of this class knows that in their heart of hearts and they believe that. But where their nervousness comes in is the application mm. because yeah. we know how to apply the pattern. But this seems a little squishy as we just want to do Jesus stuff and reflect Jesus. So mm. I'm, I want to get into a few of the questions that people from the class asked. And I think Lynn has a couple as well that have kind of, and I'll get him to weigh in if he wants to hop in as well. But here, here's what I've got. Uh, Larry Miller says, uh, growing up, we felt like the chosen one with all the right stances on baptism, music, and how to read the Bible. How has our boastful and exclusive mindset hurt our ability to reach and show love to those outside the church? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I understand that. I mean, um, I can appreciate that, uh, that feel that, we preach a lot of sermons and I've preached a few myself um, on the marks of the church. And this is what the right church looks like. And, and there was a certain kind of confidence and boldness in that and a security and a surety that that's, yeah. we got that right. Um, and it's hard to, it's hard to move to another feeling that is that we're going to find our surety in what God has done for us not in how well we got it figured out in terms of the blueprint. It isn't explicitly there. So we find ourselves uh, in the story. And it is, it is not as, um, uh, you know, the, the five marks of the church or, or whatever, the five acts of worship or whatever it is, the list that we had, made it seem like, oh, this is easy. This is simple. Here's this, 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 and this. But what we didn't realize is that that, 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 and that were all kind of inferences in which we constructed a blueprint and deduced a blueprint that wasn't explicitly there. Yeah. So making the move from what was implicit or what we thought was implicit to what is explicitly the story of God and following Jesus as the root concern, the root way of thinking about it, that gives us more surety, it seems to me, because yep. the story Wait. is repeated over and over. However, yep. <clears throat> as you said, the applications can be uh, a little fuzzy sometimes. Because when we had the blueprint, once we deduced it, once we came to the conclusion, this is the blueprint, then we, you know, we were certain, we were sure. Uh, even though the blueprint itself wasn't sure, it was based on inferences. Uh, yeah. So we don't have uh, the same uh, the same kind of okay absolutism that we have over here. Now we have a kind of of okay. I want to I want to lean into the life of Jesus and learn from Jesus and and cultivate that in my heart and my life and become like Jesus. And that gets a little more difficult uh, yeah. because it's because it engages the heart. 
when you got a blueprint and all you got to do is measure up to it, you can you can have precise obedience, but not have the heart of the father. It's like the, the, the elder son and the prodigal son story, right? The prodigal son parable. The elder son obeyed the father in every way, but he didn't understand the father's heart. Because the father received the younger son coming home and the elder brother did not, or at least at, at first did not. Yeah. So you can you can get it right and still have it wrong. You know, in terms of the heart. I went off on it anyway. So no, that's okay. Lynn, would you hop in, man? Uh yes. You know, I think the one of the things that uh in, in my particular journey that uh, struck me is if you really look at the uh, standard hermeneutic, the pattern hermeneutic, it's an emphasis on forms and methodology. And I remember when Martha and I were doing home Bible studies way back using charts, we had to create a whole different chart on the life of Christ. And that says there's something wrong here because you can have all kinds of arguments about methodology and forms, but you have to go back to the principles upon which they should be based in order to determine whether or not a form is even applicable or not, or doing what the, the principle you're, you're supposed to be looking at is. And that is that story of redemption that you articulated, John Mark, as well as in my journey, uh, we were at the beginning of Let's Start Talking, one of the first people doing that with uh, Mark and Shirley Woodward. And so when you when you look at that, you know, John said, these are things that are written that you might believe and believing you might have life. Well, that's, that's in the discipleship of Christ. It's not in the form of doing something without that uh, basis of the discipleship of Christ itself. And so I think you're right. The basis then becomes the principle of God dealing with man and man and telling man how to deal with man himself over the whole story from before creation to uh, the new creation. Yeah, I think that's I think that's correct. I think that's correct. That's the pattern. What pattern are we going after? Are we going after a pattern we're going to deduce? based upon these hermeneutical discernment principles that we use? Or are we going to um, discern the pattern that is found in the work of God, in the life of God, and in the life of Jesus, and how uh, the church played out that pattern? How did they live out the life of Christ? How did they continue the ministry of Jesus? And, and that's the question. Uh, how did they continue to play out the ministry of Jesus? Uh, yep. based upon who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And a lot of times in our discussions about church, in my history at least, when we talked about what we're supposed to do in church, we never talked about what Jesus did. That was always kind of the old covenant. Jesus lived under the old covenant. Jesus lived under the Jewish age. And so we're in the Christian age now, and we only use Acts and the epistles in the Christian age. And so we had this kind of strange outcome that said, we're going to be followers of Jesus, but we don't follow the Jesus in the Gospels. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we follow Jesus in Acts right. and the Epistles, but we don't follow the Jesus in the Gospels. And that, and that just that just didn't make sense to me, ultimately. Okay, so our next question comes from David Satterfield, and David asked this question. The book speaks of the loss of relevancy in trying to practice ancient practices in the 21st century. As a people who once aspired to speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent and doing things in Bible ways and calling Bible things by Bible names, what does this do with our identity? What yeah. identity does this book call us to have? And I think Lynn's been talking with a few folks that have been asking that as well. It's like, boy, if we if we unhook from our dock, where's this thing gonna drift? And okay. what, what's your yeah. identity? Well, I understand that question. I understand that fear and I understand the, the, the concern. It's a legitimate concern. I mean, it's it's not a not a bad question at all. 
Uh, so let me come at it on, on the one hand with the kind of the earlier part of the question, doing Bible things in Bible ways, calling Bible things by Bible names. Well, even the word Bible isn't, doesn't describe the Bible in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. So we've never done that. We have never called Bible things by Bible names. We have always had other names and other age of accountability. Where did we get that one? That's not in the Bible in terms of language, right? So there's a lot of things that we have talked about and practiced that we don't see in the Bible. I mean, uh, even having communion every first day of the week is not explicitly there in the Bible. That was a, that was a deduction, an inference, based upon how we put things together. Now, I don't think it's necessarily a bad inference, but it it is an inference, though. It's it's not it's not just simply calling it what the Bible calls it or doing it exactly what the Bible says. In fact, a lot of things the Bible says to do, we don't do. And we gave some illustration of that earlier with the veils and the gold and building arcs and you know things like that. We always have that middle step. Yeah. So what is, where does identity come in? Well, I, I, I think this, this takes us back to, to, I think what was at the heart of the restoration movement in the beginning. Our identity is found in following Jesus. Yep. Our identity Absolutely. is found in um, affirming who Jesus is and following what Jesus does uh, and living out the life of Jesus in our lives as disciples. But that's our identity. Our identity is not Church of Christ stuff. All right? Our identity is not denominational. I don't want a denominational identity. I want an identity that is rooted in Jesus. And so when I think about baptism, I'm thinking about what did Jesus do? And Jesus was baptized. So if Jesus was baptized, maybe I should be baptized too. You know, maybe I need, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, then I need to follow Jesus into the water. If I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, then I need to follow Jesus into the marketplaces and into the spaces yep. that he went that I don't go like the marginalized or the powerless sure. or the victimized. Um, or I need to be at table like Jesus was at table. Jesus thought the table was very important and he practiced table all through his ministry and then highlighted it at the end of the Last Supper and in his resurrection on the road yeah. to Emmaus. So table becomes important. So it's finding our identity, not in some kind of blueprint that we deduce, it's finding our identity in Jesus. Now, you said, well, a lot of people do that. Well, thank God. <laughs> you know, thank God that a lot of people seek to find their identity in Jesus. Because the more people who do that, then the more we will find some common ground and we can walk together and talk about our differences and how we take the, the life of Jesus and, and play it out in our own lives and in our own communities. But our identity is going to be found in it, at its root in God's act of love in Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And that's the story we want to live out. That's the pattern right there, it seems to me. Yeah. So let me, let me jump in for just a second because this is a big leap. It's, we're going from reading Scripture to replicate first century to... How do we live out the Jesus story in our day? And those are two vastly different things. So can you speak into that? Lynn's done a good job of helping us, but take advance that just a little bit. Yeah, I think this is, if you look at Luke and Acts, you know, the two volumes, one work, two volumes, right? So in Acts, what is the church doing? Is the church operating on a different principle, on a different blueprint than the life of Jesus? Or is the church living out the life of Jesus and putting into practice the ministry of Jesus? That the mission of the church is the, the mission of Jesus. Or I should say it the other way. The mission of Jesus is the mission of the church. Yep. And so the church, when we read Acts, we don't look at Acts and say, okay, this is an independent book. And now we're going to find the blueprint here by, by doing our, our making our little distinctions about command, example, inference, and silence, and generic, and specific, and coordinates, and so on. 
Yeah. Uh, I think it's sim more simple than that. It's, it's much more simpler, simple than that. It's rather we read Acts to see how the church is continuing and participating in the ministry of Jesus. And where the church continues the ministry of Jesus, then we get our cues for saying, see that continuity? That that means that's a that's that's a that means we must have have a trajectory here that this is the this is the trajectory we want to we want to live on, yeah. Whether it's baptism or table or discipleship or ministry to the poor or justice or or whatever it is, we want to live on that trajectory. And then if we look close enough, I think we would find that that's the ministry of Israel as well. Yeah. That the ministry of Israel was also on that trajectory. And that God has always had a redemptive trajectory from creation to new creation. And the church yep. is participating in that. It's not creating something de novo. It's not creating something out of the blue, a new blueprint. You know, No, it's a renewed covenant. It's a yep. renewal of the trajectory that God has always had in place. And that's kind of what I did in the book with 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I showed how the story of Jesus and the story of Israel are working on the same trajectory. Yep. And so the church wants to practice that trajectory as well. Yep. We participate in the whole story. Yeah. Well, I think Bob Mitchell wants to push you to do another example. He asked this, he said, you have been very helpful in discussions in the book about many important topics like collection and the use of church funds, baptism, assembly of the saints, the Lord's Supper, and, and racial segregation. Have you developed any studies or materials re related to the role of women in the church in the use of musical instruments and praising God? So Bob gives you a couple of softballs to tee up and uh, just some easy things to unravel. So I don't know if you want to uh, jump in and weigh in on one of those or not. Well, uh, let me just briefly say something about acapella, and, and I do say a few words about it. I think I think there are some theological reasons for acapella that are helpful. Uh, that is, we give our voices to God. We give who we are to God. And the Eastern Orthodox Church has made a theological argument for acapella for centuries that I think we need to listen to, and, and uh, I think it has value. So I'm not anti-acapella. Right. At the same time, I think that if we keep the trajectory going, right, the Israel has a trajectory of using instruments. Sure. And the new creation has instruments in it, right? The 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 heavens, uh, and Jesus certainly participated in worship that used instruments because he worshipped at the temple. So if we take seriously the trajectory, there, there's not really anything inherently wrong with using instruments. Even the church worshiped in the temple. Peter went up to pray in the temple. Uh, is the, the church worshiped in the temple precincts, which used instruments. So I, I, think, um, I think the argument against instruments is based upon you know, that silence argument. Sure. It's not authorized anywhere. But if you have a different hermeneutic, if you have a theological hermeneutic, there is authorization <laughs> in the theological hermeneutic. That doesn't mean we have to practice it. Yeah. Um, I enjoy acapella music, and, and um, I think there's a value to keeping acapella music. I think there are good reasons for it. Um, but I don't think the hermeneutic is going, I think you have to have a silence hermeneutic in order to um, absolutely prohibit yep. instruments. And I don't think that silence hermeneutic works because the scripture is silent about a lot of stuff. And then we get into this debate, well, is... Scripture silent about church building. Well, but we can build them because it's not edification. What that means, church buildings are aids, right? They are aids, and that makes them expedients. Well, what's the difference between music being an aid and as an expedient and being an addition? Well, where do you see that in scripture? Where does scripture actually talk about the distinction between music as an aid and as an addition? Well, it doesn't. But what, what we do is we have these. Uh, hermeneutical principles that we're applying that are not explicit in Scripture, and then we're inferring conclusions that are not explicit in Scripture, and we dis disfellowship people because they didn't see the same inference we saw. Yep. And yep. man, we might, we're going to dis disfellowship a lot of people on that basis. 
Um, so yeah, that, I mean, maybe that's more than I wanted to say about that, but uh, the, it gave me uh, less time to talk about uh, women, and that's probably good. Because um, <laughs> that is a much more, I think that's a much more difficult question yeah. and a much more involved question. But here's, here's uh, how the hermeneutics work, seems to me. Uh, and by the way, I do have a book coming out in a couple of weeks that we'll talk about this very question. So it's a 270-page book that I'm going to try to get at here in a couple of months. It tells you how insufficient my answer is going to be here. Sure. Um, but the blueprint hermeneutic, what is it doing? It looks in the Acts and the Epistles. It doesn't consider anything else before it. Because the, the blueprints and acts in the epistles, and it wants to find a specific command or a specific exclusion. Uh, if there's no specifics, then we go with generics. All right, so everybody prays. Well, as long as we have generics, everybody prays. Men, women, in the assembly, out of the assembly, leading prayer, not leading prayer. But what the blueprint does is it looks for the specifics in specific situations. And so it discovers, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, that only men should pray in the assembly. Uh, and so that specific then becomes a mark of a true church. Now, so what it does is it takes that text and makes it a timeless universal. And there's some problems with that because we don't do timeless universal with verse 9 in 1 Timothy 2. We do it with verse 8, but we don't do it with verse 9. Uh, and, and maybe maybe there's something else going on there that we need to pay attention to. But that's what the blueprint hermeneutic is looking for. And basically it finds two texts, two statements by Paul, and only two that exclude women from participation in the assembly. And yet at the same time, there are other texts from Paul that seem to indicate that women did participate in the assembly. And so now we have to try to figure out how to match those and how to how to harmonize them and, and what's the difference between this and that? What's the difference between this assembly and that assembly? And what are the rules for this assembly? And what are the rules for this assembly? And the blueprint starts looking for the rules, right? Yep. And when you start looking for the rules and the rules aren't there explicitly or the rules are in tension with other texts, then we have to come up with some kind of uh, construct that uh, enables us to say, well, this is what we're supposed to do. Well, the theological hermeneutic comes at it. The theological hermeneutic comes at it in terms of those trajectories yep. within the canon of Scripture. Trajectories within Scripture, not trajectories outside of Scripture, but trajectories within Scripture. And and those trajectories, it seems to me, are are uh, in this particular question about the image of God as male and female that they have a shared identity and they have a shared task. God said to them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule it, right? It's, it's, it's yeah, pretty Paul. It's ruling, right? The shared rule, shared task. And, and that trajectory seems to me uh, is all the way through scripture. As you notice in the Old Testament, a, Women are never forbidden to speak in the assembly in the Old Testament. You think, just search for it. It's not there. It's not there. It, it, um, in fact, what we have is in Micah, we have God saying, hey, I sent. That's kind of apostolic, right? Sent. I sent. That's what the word apostle means. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Whoa, I sent Miriam. Right along, do you realize that in the in the Hebrew Bible, the first named prophet is Abraham, the second named prophet is Aaron, the third named prophet is Miriam, and the fourth named prophet is Moses, the fifth is Deborah. Two out of the first five prophets named in the Hebrew Bible are women. There's a trajectory there, and and these women exercise authority. Deborah exercises authority as a judge. She exercises authority as a prophet. She commands Barak. And Barak's listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Yep. And he's not listed because he was a volunteer. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. He's listed because he obeyed Deborah. Right. Or and and um, Esther, for example, Esther authorized a new feast for Israel. It's not in the Torah. It's not in the books of Moses. Esther gave the command and authorized a new festival. She exercised religious authority. So I think you know there's a trajectory there, and the theological hermeneutic is looking for that trajectory. So that when you come to Acts 2, we have here the pouring out of the Spirit upon male and female, male and female mm-hmm. slave and free, Jew and Gentile, all flesh, which I think is, if you hear male, if you hear male, female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, you're hearing Galatians 3.28. And it's about the pouring out of the Spirit and the gifting of the Spirit. And so it's about the gifting of, of women. So, so the trajectory is, is giving us a different feel. But what do we do with these two blueprint texts as they are usually used as blueprints? Well, I mean, that, that's a discussion that has to be had. And it's not an easy one. Um, uh, but, I, but I tend to think that those two texts have unique circumstances involved. And they were yeah. never intended to be timeless uh, universal rules for the assembly. They were specific adjustments for particular situations and context. But that's a you know that's a very brief articulation of something that really is quite complicated and needs a lot of attention and a lot of prayer and a lot of discussion. Yeah, and of course you could also weigh in with. The trajectory that gets set forth in the life of Christ on yeah. that subject as well, and how Jesus gets into that. Sure, I mean Jesus is is doing is is uh, Jesus is born of a woman. Jesus is announced by a woman, Anna, the prophetess yeah. in the temple. Yeah. Jesus has women in his entourage, which was unheard of. Women were his disciples. Uh, women were the people who went from the cradle to the grave with him. The, you know, who showed up at the grave? The women, not the men. They all left. And then right. the women were the first ones to announce the resurrection. So, I mean, there's a trajectory there as well that needs to be taken into account for sure. Yep. Well, fantastic. And I appreciate you touching on that. Um, okay. So, Tara North says music. It boils down to this. The Old Testament said Praise him with the harp and lyre. Okay, so that's very good. So, Lynn, I think you had a question that someone had posed to you. Can you throw that out on the table for us tonight? Uh, yes. Can you hear me? My mic is uh, muted. We heard Can you. Can you hear me? You. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. Well, I think the the question is the flip side of what you. Uh, articulated about identity, and that is fellowship. Mm-hmm. And the question really is, since the hermeneutic can clearly result in some differences in practices, depending upon culture, uh, the character of the congregation, a lot of different factors, then what is the what is the hermeneutical basis for fellowship? Yeah, it's a good question, um, and it's a legitimate question in terms of our not only our history but also uh, biblical teaching. Because, I mean, John says um, we're not going to have fellowship with people who don't believe Jesus uh, didn't come in the flesh, right? So, I, I think it's a exactly. uh, important question. So. I would, I would want to suggest that when we read Scripture itself, when we, when we see what is going on in Scripture in terms of the community of faith, the community of faith has a center. It has a rule. And I talk about this in the book in terms of Galatians 6, right? The rule that we walk by. And that rule is the cross of Jesus and the new creation. It is, in fact... Uh, a kind of based in Christ, based in who Christ is and the identity of Jesus and what Jesus has done and how Jesus has created us anew 
and that there's a new creation ethic, a new creation story that we're living into and leaning into. So I would want to suggest that though there might be lots of differences about how to walk this out, that those who confess that fundamental story share a life together. No one says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. I mean, Paul said that, right? 1 Corinthians 12. No one says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And that when one confesses God as the creator and that God has chosen Israel and through Israel, God brings the Messiah and the Messiah is the one who redeems Israel and redeems the nations and God has poured out God's Spirit uh, and that we are then to live in the Spirit and live out the ethic of the Spirit and the ethic of the new creation and we follow that we follow Jesus into that that future. Seems to me that's that's our fellowship. That's that's the community of faith. And we live and, with each and, other in that community. And our uh, travels in at about 30 countries and meeting Christians all over the world, when we found somebody, and many of these countries were atheistic and no no faith at all. When we found somebody that uh, confessed Jesus as Lord was a Christian, as far as we were concerned, they were a brother. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel about it today. Yeah. Because that, yeah. I think that's the base. I'm sorry, uh, go, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, go so ahead. We, I said, we, I think that's, that's the basis then for fellowship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, that there's a sense in which we still want to walk with each other and teach each other the way of the Lord more perfectly, right? That we still want right. to learn and grow. And there's a sense of communal sanctification and to grow up into the life of God and to more fully practice the life of God and more fully uh, embody the life of God. And that's a journey. And it's a, communal sanctification is an ongoing journey. We never arrive. We're always in process. And that's why we have to give grace to each other. Yep. Uh, now, when it comes to something like baptism, I mean, Jesus was baptized. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be baptized. And so you, you follow Jesus, right? And, and I think that, that people, as I illustrated in the book, the young lady who said she was a Christian, but she's never been baptized and she didn't see the point. Maybe she would do it later. And I said, well, are you a disciple of Jesus? She said, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And I said, well, that means you follow Jesus. Yeah, I, I, I go wherever Jesus goes. And I say, well, Jesus went into the water. <laughs> Why don't you follow him into the water? You know, if Jesus was baptized, it must be a good thing. <laughs> you know, uh, so follow Jesus, right? Yeah. And, and I think it's that simple sometimes, but we complicate it by making all these distinctions and saying, well, you didn't know exactly the right thing, and you didn't have a, a correct understanding of baptism, and you didn't, you know, and we start meddling with the fundamental sense of discipleship and obedience. When people yeah. are obedient to Jesus, we say, thank God, <laughs> they're obedient to Jesus. So John Herzog says this, uh, that this discussion ties in with the Sunday school lesson for this Sunday. We are one church and one salvation because God has declared us so whether we choose to recognize our unity and our efforts at sanctification, it's yeah. just a, a great point. Uh, and then our final question, we want to keep folks too long. Uh, Danny DeLogger says, now that we have highlighted that we have these patternistic practices, how should we approach them if they inhibit the unity Jesus prayed for? And I, I'm guessing what Danny is talking about is that there's unity within the church family and then there's unity within all the believers that Jesus prayed for. So sometimes those, those two are intention. How would you speak yeah. into that? Yeah, I think if, if we mean by patternistic practices, kind of blueprint practices that we've deduced right. and inferred, I don't think we should make any inference a test of fellowship. Yep. I think if it's an inference, we, we say it may be true. You know, it, it can be true. But we don't make it a test of fellowship because not everybody's going to see the inference. What we find, we find our fellowship rooted in what God has done in Jesus by the Spirit. And when we find our um, unity there and in the communion of the Holy Spirit, 
then it's not based upon our inferences about patterns. It's yeah. based upon our sense of confessing Jesus as Lord, the Father as the Creator, and living out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and seeking to follow Jesus in every way that we find possible. Yeah, and I, I think more and more churches are seeing it that way, and though maybe some of their practices don't change, we're starting to see like churches here in McKinney that are working together instead of everyone having their own benevolence program, yeah. all believers getting together and saying, how can we do this uh, in a unified way? And so I think that there's some real positive things that are on the horizon. So. Right, and I don't think this in, this entails practices must change. I don't necessarily think it entails practices must change. I I'm I, I fully advocate for a every first day of the week Lord's Supper. I sure. I wouldn't go to a church that didn't have the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. That's yep. I think there's some good reasons for that. Now some churches don't, and and I would want to have a dialogue with them, but. But I, but I can't make it a test of fellowship because the Bible doesn't exactly say that in explicit terms. That's kind of my understanding of the story, my understanding of the implications of the story. So I don't think we have to necessarily change practices, but we right. need to hold our practices more loosely as inferences. Yeah. And seek not, not, we don't find certainty in the practice. We yep. find certainty in the Lordship of Jesus, yeah. whom we serve through these legitimate practices. Yeah. They're so legitimate. They may not yeah. be absolute, but they're legitimate. Yeah. And so, so whether it's the proclamation of the word or communion or baptism, all three of those retell the Jesus story in our midst. Exactly. And so exactly. once again, that's taking these practices that are very dear to us and putting it through the theological lens. Exactly. So, Instead of trying to find the blueprint lens, we, we find the yeah. lens in Jesus, right? Jesus yeah. was baptized, so we're baptized. Jesus was at table, so we're at table. I mean, it, yeah. and, there, and that the theology of that is what unites the trajectory. Yep. Lynn, do you have any other thing you want to add before we close up? And then I'll give John Mark the last word. Well, uh, one of the things that uh, that has always struck me is what Jesus said about uh, what the marks of a Christian were. And if you, if you remember, there are three different things, I think, that are articulated in Scripture. One is the unity. One is their love for one another. And one is demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. If we had all three of those, we wouldn't have such problems. Yeah. Love of God and love of neighbor, right? The first and yeah. second commandment. Right. And that's what exactly. we find at root. Um, yeah. So, yeah, this is, um, uh, you know, I found it in the benediction of Second Corinthians. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. I think it fits what you just said there, Len. That, 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 that's, our, that's our world we live in. That's the story we live in. And we're going to make some mistakes and we're going to draw some bad conclusions at times. And we're going to we're going to mess it up on occasion. But if we live within the story, the grace of Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit hold us firm securely. And we don't have to worry about messing up because we are oriented and rooted in what God is doing. And that's yep. that's where we find our security. Yeah. So uh, once again, thank you for your book and thank you for coming on to be with us tonight. Uh, for those that want to read further on what you were talking about, about uh, what we see with women in scripture and stuff, what, what's the name of your book that's coming out in two weeks? Yeah, it's called Women Serving God. Uh, okay. My journey in understanding that story in the Bible. So okay. it, it's kind of, it's building on this book. So it's taking the next step and applying it to uh, women serving God. Well, fantastic. Well, listen, we appreciate your time. And uh, if you don't mind, do you mind saying a prayer of blessing over these believers as we wrestle on this journey? Sure. I, I, my favorite prayer is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so we'll begin sort of with that. Um, our Father who art in heaven, let your name be sanctified in this community of people. 
May they raise your name above all names. May they do your will just as it is done in heaven. And may your kingdom explode among them. May it grow and blossom and become the fruit of your spirit in all ways, in every corner of this community. Give them what they need every day. Forgive them of their mistakes as they forgive others who have done things to them. And protect them, O oh God. Protect them from the evil one. And keep them in your care and in your love for the sake of your name and for the glory of your kingdom, which is yours forever and ever. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank Have you for the invitation. It's good to be here. And thank you for studying the book. I, I appreciate your attention to it and your willingness to, to wrestle with it. You bet. Well, blessing to you. I appreciate it. Thank you, bro. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Len. Bye. Bye-bye.